Hello everyone and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. Today I am joined by Yomi Adegake. Yomi is a journalist and writer and she has just written the most fantastic book. If you haven't heard of it, where have you been? It's been everywhere and it's called The List. And it really explores the sort of complexity of the social media landscape, what is true, what is not. It's something that I feel we've all experienced to varying degrees, or we've at least witnessed. And it's been picked up to be made into a TV show. She's just on this journey at the moment that's so exciting to witness. And so I was really overjoyed that she came on the Saturn Returns show and spoke to me about her journey into journalism, some of the tricky things she navigated along the way. We touch a lot on imposter syndrome and how writing a book, like all the things that come up for the ways that we, yeah, we have to face all of those aspects about ourselves, battling that imposter syndrome. And she's really come out the other side, like, conquering those feelings and has achieved amazing things. And so it's very inspirational to see we also discuss the toxic world like i mentioned of of social media and how that has created this cancel culture space where without realizing you could say something online go and make a cup of tea and come back and have gone viral and everything has spun out of control and whether or not that has ever happened to you you have read it you have seen it online And that creates this quite fear-based system where we're all very quick to jump on that judgment train and to, as my dear friend Africa calls it, to digitally stone people. It's actually really disgusting when you see some of the things that happen. But what I think Yomi has done so smartly is put it into a book that really captures that not really knowing what's going to happen, not really knowing what's true or what's not. And that, I think, is why it's caught so many people's attention in this modern world that we live in. We also discuss the sort of dissonance of the online persona, and Yomi highlights how there can be this sort of difference between our online and offline personas and how everyone can be a very different person behind a screen but you might be saying certain things that you want to align with but are you actually embodying them and I found that a really interesting concept. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned something from it and 100% if you haven't yet I suggest you pick up a copy of the list it has been a Sunday Times bestseller and it's a wonderful book to read Yummy, welcome to Saturn Returns. Thanks for having me, Kagi. I honestly just thinking like our names, Yummy and Kagi, <laughs> sound like a children's book. It's not like the proper protagonists. <laughs> the adventures the of Yummy and Kagi. <laughs> it is giving very much that. <laughs> I'd read it. I'd read it. I would read it. I mean, maybe you, you could, could write, write it. it. <laughs> but thank you for joining me today just to kind of add a bit of context we met probably trying to think how long ago it was like maybe eight six months eight months ago jesus has it been that long oh my god i think you're right it was a while ago because it was like spring was like in full 
false, I think. <laughs> so much has changed for you. So you've been on a crazy journey, but just to kind of add for the audience that hasn't met you before and doesn't know what you're about, like let's kind of bring it back to the beginning. Right. Because you've got this insane project that's happening at the moment that is just kind of dreams come true kind of stuff, which I mean to kind of, we'll, we'll go back to it, but an amazing book that's being made into a TV show. Thank you. That's fantastic, by the way. I'm oh, loving God. it. And I'm not great with fiction. <laughs> and I, honestly, it's so, so good. Thank you so much. And I have so many questions about it. But to kind of bring it back to the beginning, like what has your journey been like? Kind of childhood, because then you were- you went to <laughs> Way back. So where, where were you brought up? Right. So I was born actually in Canning Town in okay. East London and moved to Croydon when I was, God, I think I was like two. I say it like I remember, like I, I reckon I was about two. My parents said I was about two. And I've lived there ever since. And gosh, what, what can I say about my childhood? Always liked writing, but funnily enough, I've never ever really identified as a writer first and foremost, because I used to paint a lot. And it's, okay. I, I haven't had time to paint um, in a long time, but um, painting was always like my first love. It sounds really corny to be like, I love storytelling and that's like through whatever medium. So sometimes I'll I be... love that. I always say that. Like, I'm like, that when I didn't know how to describe what I do, ball. I'm like, I'm a storyteller through whatever medium. <laughs> whichever, like. whatever that takes. <laughs> that is me. And I think I used to like really love art for that reason and really loved painting um, and still love art, though it's more now like trying to like buy art and decorate my flat with art, but less actually, you know, practically doing it. But like, always was into writing like my dad was like a very keen storyteller i think that's where i get my talking at people from <laughs> my dad used to like walk us to school and like tell us stories on the way um and i remember me and my little sister we'd be like walking with him kind of like eye rolling between each other like, oh god here we go again <laughs> but i think it you know i thank him for it because i think it's probably where i got my love of like language and literature but i think what what i always i'm hesitant to say is i think the want is for someone to be like, God, I'd always wanted to be a writer. And it was like my biggest dream. And it really wasn't, not, not that's initially. Okay, but I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's right. why it's so interesting to actually hear how someone got to where they got. So right. it's bizarre. But you said that writing was still something that loved you loved. It. In loved what, it. In what capacity? Like journaling or writing stories? No way, actually, no. So me and my best friend, um, fast forwarding a little bit here but we actually released co-released like a, a journal together and she'd spoken she's actually like ceo now of like a incredible journaling app storia and she told me how much journaling was like so crucial and like kind of core to her understanding herself and i was like god this is probably why i don't know who the hell i am because <laughs> i don't journal i like don't i've never liked to like sit down and like write a diary. And... I did it once and it felt very performative for me. I felt like I was like- Like someone's watching you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's so funny how Truman people show. do that. Yeah. They like start writing as if they're like, they're, I was they're writing for posterity. <laughs> I was definitely writing for posterity. Like, okay, so when this is found, it didn't feel natural. <laughs> it wasn't natural at all. Um, but I did write a lot and I felt like I, I would express myself through writing, but it was like, I loved English literature. I loved um, English lessons because I thought they were just really fun. I had this, um, really i feel like it was really niche game that my dad bought um called storybook weaver which i don't feel like anyone else in the world i feel like it was made like it was just manufactured just for me and my sister maybe <laughs> my dad made it <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but basically you just had had this like blank space and you'd write stories and had pages and it had like little um 
like little characters that you know you didn't draw them yourself it had like a witch and it had like um a wolf and it had kids and me and my sister used to play that for hours to play it. it was just writing books and my sister wrote a book called um the magic cup because there was like a princess icon and a goblet icon so she like wrote this whole book called the magic cup off of that and mine i wrote a book called baby world which was just rugrats it was just rugrats i just got all these little baby icons and like just wrote rugrats like all these kids go on these adventures um i think they even had a key that they like opened out to like you know yomi and kagi's adventures yeah yomi and kagi (laughs) one of them was called yomi one of them was called kagi i'm not even joking i might as well have been but yeah, like I just wrote that book. I was like, the, I'm not joking. It was like Baby World, then the list. Like my present day, I'd never written a book in between. And just to add, the list is being list made is... into a BBC show with HBO right. Max right. and A24. So um, you went from that. I, I went from that. Then I had like a 27 year hiatus or something. And then that's I wrote not, on the that's list. That's not entirely true. No, no. I wrote fiction in between once. I wrote a short story which was for an anthology called um, Comfort Zones, published by Jigsaw. And that was all about women. They were writing about their comfort zones and I couldn't really think of anything to write outside of my comfort zone in terms of like, you know, an actual story or like article outside of my comfort zone or essay. So I took it quite literally and wrote fiction because it was outside of my comfort zone. But honestly, aside from like Baby World and um, that short story, I most of my writing was always nonfiction. You know, at school, I'd really flourish, I think, in essays. Um, My parents always say that, like, they really wanted me to be a lawyer because they were like, oh my God, you love to argue. And I was like, well, it's called debating, actually. Like, I do do like a Barney, but not like an angry one. I like to, like, defend a side for something. So I loved essays because it gave me space to, like explain things i think that's how i expressed myself and i if i had an idea i'd lo- i really love to be like this is why i think this thing and you might think this other thing but here's why you shouldn't and i, I enjoyed it so i understand why that went towards law absolutely which i was rubbish at which you hated terrible at law i do not say that to be coy because <laughs> I'm, I'm actually quite like confident in my abilities and other things but law i was dreadful like because you went and studied that at uni i did study at uni my parents had always said, oh, we reckon you'd be a good lawyer. Um, but there was no pressure because I think there's often that narrative of like, especially within like Nigerian households, the idea that you can only either be a doctor, a, uh engineer or a lawyer. There's quite, you know, stringent rules for what's deemed a successful. But my parents weren't like that at all. My parents loved that I painted and God bless my dad really wanted me to be, he wanted me to be an architect because he felt like, oh, it's just drawing houses. <laughs> he literally like, it's kind houses. of putting it in one of the lanes of like doctor, lawyer. Right, it's like, of, not just a painter. Yeah, he's like, an architect because you draw a house. I was like, I think there's some mountain involved. <laughs> right, the not quite thing. the same thing. But they did definitely nurture my like artistic talents and would have let me do what I wanted. But it was more kind of like, we've seen your strengths and you are good at arguing. Mm-hmm. And then I got to uni and was like, terrible at it yeah. it was just so much latin i was like where did all this come from there was a lot of latin and there was a lot of kind of like practical stuff that i hadn't expected i thought it was i always say i thought it was gonna be like ali mcbeal i thought it was gonna be like <laughs> mini skirts and like, <laughs> just like a, a gaggle of friends and it wasn't that um but yeah i think writing in the non-fiction sense didn't surprise me because it was something i enjoyed doing basically i like com- was completely terrible at maths terrible at like science but like humanity so like 
history, sociology, anything that required writing, geography, I, I was able to like blag my way through. Cause mm -hmm. I, I, I did like writing. I just didn't think, oh, that's going to be my I'll career be really. So it sounds like creativity was very much in the household, was yes. encouraged, but then you were also trying to pursue things that were a bit more, I guess I'm gonna use it like the more stable career yes, that choices. Is, that's the right word. Right? Which I think yeah. a lot of us feel, I mean, as you know, the journey of being a creative is kind of unstable. Absolutely. And our parents are always going to try and give us the best opportunity yeah. to do the most sensible thing so right. that we're safe and everything. So Absolutely. what was that? Was that a tricky thing to kind of navigate going from 100%. studying law? Because I think a lot of people probably do study law and then they're like... Yeah, a lot of creatives as well. I feel like because law does require certain kind of... Um, a particular set skill set that I think actually is then you can then translate that into like writing like for like as a journalist or other things because a lot of people I know that studied law have then gone on to do something quite creative and also I know quite a few people who were doing something creative and then decided to go into law because I do think it has quite a lot of transferable skills but growing up with certainly a level of financial instability meant that my parents were quite laid back but simultaneously were like look whatever you do we want you to have a nice life and we want you to feel stable and comfortable. And I think that's why art was always off the guards for me because I thought, it doesn't I remember, scream stability. It doesn't scream stability <laughs> and it screams very much like, you know, notoriety a hundred years after you're dead, <laughs> you can't spend the money. So I was like, I don't know about that. I don't think I'm gonna go down that route. So I remember like at Warwick, which is a very kind of, um corporate uni I'd say in terms of there's a real focus on you know everybody wants to work at like Deloitte PwC and I knew that wasn't my journey but simultaneously I felt that that was the thing I should do because that was what everyone else was doing and I remember very vividly having a interview with like Barclays and I can't even remember what the role was for and I just remember like pretty much like disassociating on the phone. Like I just like out of body experience, like what am I doing? Like, I'm never gonna get this job and I don't even want it. Like the worst thing that could happen for me was to get this job. But I, at the forefront of my thinking, even when I decided to do journalism, which is all I've ever done really, was how am I gonna make this something that is stable for me? How am I going to make this something that means that like I'm able to make ends meet comfortably and I'm able to not look back at it as, uh, as a mistake or something that, I've enjoyed doing, but I can't- Couldn't like, make it work. Yeah, I couldn't make it work. So a lot of thought went into it. And my older sister's a journalist as well. Right. She'd like sort of navigated that world before me. So I think I was able to see like, God, it's not easy, but it, it is possible to have, like make a living. But I would absolutely say that like, it was at the forefront of my mind constantly. If I hadn't been thinking about stability and like finances, I'd have most likely like gone to Central St. Martins and like, done art, fine art or something, or like done like fashion, but I, it just didn't seem possible. And then what was it like stepping into the world of journalism? So to back it up a little bit, I was still like, oh my God, what am I gonna do with my life? It's really funny because me and my best friend, we always say that like, anyone that ever says that like, oh, you knew you'd make something of yourselves when we wrote our first book, Slaying Your Lane, we're like, if they met us at uni, they're definitely lying because we were like <laughs> a mess, <laughs> we were, a mess. <laughs> I literally failed my first year, failed my second year, took a year out in my third because I was like <laughs> going through it. Oh, I can't fail the third. I was like, they can't fail me if I'm not here. 
like it. <laughs> right. Left, came back, but literally only just like scraped my two one because I was just all over the shop. Um, I never had that much freedom. My, it's weird. Again, my parents like used to let me go out and stuff. Um, again, kind of pushing against, I suppose, like certain stereotypes because there's definitely a stereotype of like African parents being quite like strict, which which there's some truth to. But my parents let me go out. They were just like, you know, what, as long as you get the grades, you can like come in whenever you want. Just bring home an A. And I was like, I'll do that if it means I can like go raving all the time. So I used to go out, um, but I'd never like been away from home. I'd never like lived out of London. It, it was just so different for me. So I think I just got very like drunk, literally, figuratively. Like I was just like, this is insane. And like met all these amazing people. And law also was something I'd never studied before. The gap between, you know, A-level and uni was huge. Very so I was yeah. very lost, very lost. And then I started blogging. So writing kind of found me where I was on my year out and I was like, God, I don't really know what to do with my life. And it was like a pop culture blog, very similar actually to like, I write a column for The Guardian about reality TV. And it was literally just me like moaning about things. I was like writing all these like <laughs> pop culture stuff. Like, oh yeah, you know, like this is my opinion on this show. And this is my opinion on this album. And someone um, who I actually thank in my acknowledgements who I probably haven't spoken to in like 10 years, except to thank him on LinkedIn for saying this to me. He was like this guy that went to my uni who I didn't really know that well. And he just said to me one day, like, I read your blog and you could do this properly like this you could be a journalist so off the back of that blog i started like a zine zine public like magazine thing that was like funded by like this organization called o2 think big another one called vinspired did that for a little bit then i left then i did internships then i was in journalism and i was like oh my god it's not just me now these are real people mm -hmm. and they're all completely different to me and I'm not only like really young and black and from like a normal background, I was just like, I've also not got a journalism degree and I, I'm a blogger. <laughs> my, my CV is like, I started a blog <laughs> and I'm like in a newsroom. So I was like, this is insane. So it was very intimidating and overwhelming initially because I just felt like, oh my God, this is a lot for somebody who was self-editing up to however many days before <laughs> so it, it was terrifying wild. very 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 terrifying and what were some of the experiences like there oh gosh um it was it, you know what i would say really actually positive i met these amazing like all really talented journalists and they were i was the youngest and they were all really nurturing and like kind to me but also i had all these ideas that were like super niche very very much like specific to my background and like spoke to my editor and was like, I have this idea and you might not get it because this is like quite specific to me, but I think there is value in that specificity because no one else is writing about this thing. So like, for instance, there was this defunct like grime channel called Channel U, which like is the most niche, like really specific channel that like a lot of people would have grown up with, especially like in a city like Londoners um, that listen to like grime music. And like, I'd never seen anything on it. And I was like, we should like find all the musicians from that channel that disappeared and interview them and ask them like what they're, what they're up to now. And it was very niche, but he was like, my um, editor then was like, you know what? Like, that's actually a really great idea. And that piece went really viral. And then he just like supported all of my ideas that were like quite, again, a bit more risky. So I think it really helped me with like my imposter syndrome because I had an editor and just a team that really, thought I was onto something. You do need that kind of validation, right. you know, to be like, okay, I'm on the right track. Yes. And I was thinking actually earlier, 
in terms of the advice you'd give your younger self. I was thinking how I wish that I'd been able to authorize myself a bit more. Yeah. But at the same time, we need a team, you yeah. know? And so it sounds like you actually, you know, luckily had a support system around you that I was did. encouraging you to th do the things that gave you more confidence to kind of take the next step. Absolutely. I definitely was surrounded by, I mean, it's not like things were perfect, but I think I'd heard all these really scary journalism stories. And I kind of, my first experience was very much a nurturing one. And as you said, like there was value in authorizing yourself and kind of like self-affirming, but I don't know when you're like you 22, you. how old I was and like, like didn't know a thing about like, they were like, Anything. oh, we've got Ofcom regulations. I was like, what is that? Like genuinely, I was like, what? I've just been blogging, probably like committing libel, even though I should know <laughs> what libel is from my law degree. But like, I was just a mess. And like, they were able to kind of like, just remind me that, yeah, I, I my route had been different to getting there, but I should have been there. When so kind of <clears throat> overcoming the imposter syndrome thing because obviously writing god books yeah. is like the destination point for imposter syndrome yeah. <laughs> so what was you're literally it? begging to be like to have imposter syndrome <laughs> god how old were you when you wrote your first book aside from the the baby oh god. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> aside from baby world where i was like six <laughs> um i think me and elizabeth were like I was 23, I believe, and she was 22 when we had the idea. And what happened is that she was working in the city in a bank. Was I, I, I might have actually been at Channel 4 News at this point. And I'd been like plodding along and I, you know, it was an amazing place to work, but again, like huge imposter syndrome. And it was a lot more intense than Viewpoint, which had been like opinion like pieces. Mm -hmm. This was like real hard news. And I was like, oh my goodness, if I thought I didn't know anything before, now I really don't know anything. So Elizabeth was working in the city and we were having like, similar issues but different so she was like oh my god i have this idea for a book it's basically like lean in but like aimed at black women in the uk and she was like you want to write a book one day surely you're right i like you write it and i was like uh that's the best idea i've ever heard and i don't think she realizes how good this is i thought she would just give this to me <laughs> so i was like mm, do you want to write this together so it was actually her, I, it was her <laughs> idea. she literally went do you want to write this and i was like um i do but i also think we should write this together because it's so good and like i don't want to be sat here kind of like with what actually happened with saying it was like a huge success and she's just looking at me like hang on that was my <laughs> idea so thankfully yeah <laughs> thankfully we wrote it together that's so lovely <laughs> yeah no she's she's the best because she i'm like the fact she even just gave me that idea and then i was like no let's do it together it's so like kind of representative of like our friendship because we just want wanted and want the best for each other so we wrote that book and it was like you know guide to life interviewed all these amazing black women about their careers and stuff and then um i think that conversation initially happened when elizabeth was 22 and i was 23 and i think when it came out maybe at that point we were like 25 or something mm -hmm. and it was so funny because like we were gonna write this like guide like yeah this is how you slay in your lane women and we were like we want this book because we don't know what we're doing. So how can we possibly write this? That's where all the interviews came from because we were like, we don't, we're we like sat learn, down, yeah. right? And <laughs> we're, we're like, like, so how do, do we tell them? <laughs> we were like, oh, we don't know, hence the book. So we interviewed all these women, but it was also really funny because we were so young. And I think having each other really helped us with the imposter syndrome because if anyone ever recorded our conversations, like they would think we are insane. Like we literally are like, 
yeah man we're gonna do it we're amazing like we just really affirm each other and like we just constantly would tell each other like yeah we're the best people for this and you know this book's bigger than us like we literally sounded like it was constant ted talks like just <laughs> constant back-to-back -back ted talks we sounded like lunatics but it was so useful because we were just constantly like reminding the other one and there was two of us so the other one it was like if one of us felt a little bit like oh god the other one was always there to like be like no you got this girl pick like, up the energy yeah it, always always so that's i think how we how we god it's like a blur like that period of life is such i can't believe we wrote that book because what just was like, one of your biggest findings from writing that book oh god so many you know what i think that a lot of the things that the women in the book were experiencing like so our oldest interviewee margaret busby was definitely in her 80s um and our youngest florence adipodju was definitely in her 20s early to mid 20s and the stuff that like florence was talking about in terms of barriers in the workplace and stuff like that were like the same things that like margaret was talking about and they're like multiple generations different mm -hmm. so we were like wow that's like really quite shocking that like so many of the women are still experiencing the same problems and hurdles but then i think in a positive way the thing that like we um picked up on was that also the same like the interview said a lot of the same stuff and that was like when it came to like yes negative things but also just in terms of coping and like positive things like okay how much sisterhood had helped them how much allies had helped them just even leaning into the difference of being like you know the one black woman in like a workplace like really leaning into that difference and being like well i'm gonna stand out anyway so when it comes to like i don't know putting forward an idea in like a meeting or something like relying on that difference of perspective as like value when i think back to what i was saying with like um when i was at itn and i had that very different perspective i was very lucky that i was in the in an organization that saw value in that and i think throughout my whole career really i've very much like understood that you know journalism is quite a homogenous industry and i know that like i i kind of am like a rarity certainly to an extent and i think i've lent on that and i very much tried to like talk about things and write about things from a perspective that I know is different and write about things that are different and look at that as a valuable thing. And I think a lot of my editors and people I've worked with have seen it in the same way. So, yeah. In, in terms of <clears throat> sisterhood and allies, I yes. think that's such an important and beautiful thing, but women also ha can have the capacity to not be oh, so supportive absolutely. of each other. And there's quite a, we've been thinking about this in, in the sense that women haven't been able to even be in the workplace for mm. all that long. So there's quite a scarcity right. mindset 100%. in terms of, oh, well, if you're here, then I can't be here. Or yeah. if you get that job, then I can't get that 100%. job. Has that been very present in your experience? I find it so interesting because it's like, on the one hand, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, not, not all women are allies and not all women support other women but i'm kind of like you know what it's like the duality of women <laughs> like you know yes. in the same way men could be <laughs> terrible women can be terrible too and i'm like it's a given it's an absolute given and i think it's why people who went to girl schools like fascinate me because i think there is often that kind of like almost idealistic like utopian outlook of like oh women supporting women but then girls i know that went to girl school like what do you mean that like all women so of course they don't i went to girl school like my best friends were women and my bullies were women so yeah there's an yeah. understanding that like that's just not always a given but i think i have been like incredibly lucky i mean being able to like work with my best friend proved to me like that you know 
the sisterhood was like a real thing like having someone who absolutely had my best interests like be basically my like co-author my business partner um yeah showed me that it was like a very real thing and just I think if anyone like the interviewees oh my god to this day because me and Elizabeth were complete randoms we slid into Vanessa King Corey's DMs this was when she was at GQ and you know we were just like hi you don't know us but we think you're amazing and we have this book and you've heard nothing about it, but we'd love to interview you for it. Even then she was the busiest person in the world. And she was like, why not? And like June Sarpong, who we saw at um, Afro Hair and Beauty Live, we like knew she was going to be there. So we approached her and she's like, yeah, like I'd love to be interviewed by you guys. And she gives us her email and we're like waiting for the bounce back. And she's like, no, nope, this is my email. Like, let's, let's do it. And I think more than anybody, if I'm being honest, that showed us that like sisterhood and like, you know, putting that ladder down like is a real thing it was the interviewees like mm. so many of these women were so important Mallory Blackman like the Margaret Busby women. like these are legends Charlene White who I accosted in the toilets of ITN she's washing her hands <laughs> she's washing her hands in the toilets and I was like hi Charlene she's like hello who are you kind of thing and I was like I'm writing this book like so many of these amazing women that they believed in it and they took their time out to um support us and be in the book and they're people that we still like speak to many of them so That's that amazing. showed me sisterhood's real and and how important it is because without their inclusion the book just wouldn't have been what it was yeah and also shows your ability <clears throat> to have that kind of conviction in what you guys were creating oh, yeah. and the courage <laughs> to go after it is incredible because i think for many people the hardest thing is starting if you right. have like, even if it's an amazing idea people sort of get stuck at the first hurdle because they're like oh i don't want to but you know don't want to bother people they're too busy but it also yeah. goes to show that actually this, this idea of networking really mm. and giving each other the chance and the opportunity and yeah. the time and if you just reached out to people like the worst that can happen is they, they say, say no. no and I think I learned that because I was a journalist when yeah you know so I was so used to like knows not even just from like job applications but from you know sources people you want to speak to so I really was just like you know what the worst thing they can say there's like a really gross but like very accurate phrase where people say vomit and move on move on like the worst thing that can, if something bad happens it's embarrassing you just like vomit move past it <laughs> I've never <laughs> heard think, that before <laughs> it's it's a fact it's, I live my entire life by just vomit and move on so just like, do well, the thing just my, do no, the I, my thing. friend actually called, she was she called it eat the frog have you heard of that <laughs> never I don't know and it's like a That's similar thing gross, but, but I'm someone like I'm it. always like oh no I don't want to and like you know like the taste of frog. yeah exactly I'm <laughs> like oh, I does. don't like vomiting but actually it's so true because like you just kind of either know one way or the other yeah every single one is true because I think we were just like you know what let's just do it and I think I have always to be fair had that like as long as the worst case scenario isn't death I'm likely to do something I'm likely to try it because there are worse things <laughs> there are actually worse things than like failing I feel so I just am very much like let's do it and Elizabeth was saying that like you know with Slaying Your Lane, like she was saying that she was really happy we did it together because she knows that like she had this brilliant idea and she knew that like I'm convicted like I believe what I'm saying like I, I'm very much like that person so I was like so passionate about it and I really believed in it I used to say to her, I could like see in my mind's eye like that as a journalist I could see how it would be written about and all this kind of stuff and I was I believed in it so much that like, I had the vision I had the vision you can probably say I'm such a manifestation hun I'm like such a manifestation hun so to go from all of that to then I mean we've got to 
talk about the list because yeah. that is it, it's everything is amazing but then this Thank is you. like a huge yeah. leap like you said fiction's a whole beast in God, itself it's something else. Yeah. and that was something you did alone in the pandemic i did yes so kind of what was the pandemic exp- i mean obviously you're bringing something to life that's an incredible creation off the back of the Thank pandemic you. but what was that kind of process like during that time and Ooh. writing it conceptualizing it yeah. everything so i <laughs> was in a long-term relationship it ended like i maybe a month or no maybe two months before the pandemic um really start to hit so I was like, you can't even do the things of like, oh, I'm gonna get drunk with my girls and I can't do any of that. I'm literally locked, it's lockdown. I've got to like be, got, I have to have like a mask on and be like however many feet away from everybody else. So I can't do any of the things that people do, which probably is for the best because they're like self-destructive, but still they're distracting. So I was like, I can't do what I would normally do to get over this thing. So I was like literally losing my mind. I can't bake i can't cook to save my life jesus christ so i was like what am i actually gonna do with all this time so what i initially was doing was painting i was like doing all these paintings and like really actually enjoying it um and like having a great time with the like painting and stuff but like after a while i kind of felt like god i don't really know where else to go with this i was kind of losing my creative mojo but knowing i wanted to do something and then someone was like to me well have you ever thought of doing more fiction and i was like well i had this like you know, kind of seed of an idea that wasn't actually supposed to be fiction. I was going to write as a like long form article. And I was like, yeah, I had that thing. I could give that a go. I know I wanted to do something on that topic, but like I kind of originally conceived of it. The topic think, of the list. Yeah, of, of like anonymous lists and like- um, Well, just to kind of add and explain to people, yeah. would, would, I mean, would you be able to explain the sort of storyline yes. of this? Because I'm like- Oh, with pleasure. I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, is this based off- so Ola is a feminist journalist whose brand online is very much like she's a feminist she's a writer like that's how she's known she's one half of a very visible couple um her partner's called Michael they are hashtag couple goals everyone loves them they're about to get married and another part of like their brand is as Michael and Ola like Ola and Michael they're known as this unit they're like Instagram famous, internet famous. They're gonna get married in a month's time. A month before the wedding, Ola sees Michael's name on an anonymously curated list of abusive men in the media. And a month is like long enough out that like you can change your mind, but also not. Yeah, (laughs) the stakes are high. The stakes are pretty high. So it literally counts down from the, you know, from that month all the way down to like, you know, the, the, the wedding day do they get married do they not that's like basically what it's about it's a great idea oh thank you so much i don't know see it depends i suppose it depends on like how online someone is post me too there were like a lot of different lists that kind of went not even post it was like kind of in the height of media or lots of different lists that like went around anonymously that were kind of like outlining various abuse allegations outing Um, people outing people right so i was like okay this is something i want to look at in non-fiction and I want to do like a journalistic piece because I thought it'd be really interesting to look at the ethics of it as a approach to justice but also to look at the women involved because I feel like so often maybe understandably the focus is on the accused the accused men but I was like I'm interested in what if you're the mother of someone the partner of someone the sister of someone what if your male friend shows up on this because I've seen names on lists and recognized names. Mm-hmm. And 
I've seen names where I've been like, oh, wow, okay, I've heard about this before and that tracks. And then other things, other times it's more complicated, right? So I was like, okay, I'm really interested in like, how to kind of tell this story. From a so, different perspective. From a different, like to, exactly. So I was like- Not right the interview. mainstream narrative of like these bad men. Right, or even saying these bad men, but this also bad medium of online. Do you know what I mean? So, so these bad men often, but also like, what if it's not always that, but then also is online the way to do it? And that's why I have it in the book that you don't know for the vast majority of the book, whether Michael, Thor's fiance, you don't know until like the very last page, whether he's done it or not, because I wanted to be like, whether he's done it or not, is, is this it? approach, do you get what I mean? Online, the right, way to do it regardless of what the outcome is of whether he did it or not you cannot help but empathize with both party yeah. so i was writing this during lockdown and then it was my god i think i wrote like eighty thousand words or something i was actually agentless at the time and then i was like speaking to loads of different agents and then i spoke to um one of the agents i met was my agent Hayley Steed, who's incredible. And she was actually the most critical of the work. She was like, this is really good, but I think you could do this. I think you could do that. So I went on a writing retreat, like cut, I think 50,000 words. From 80,000. Yeah, from 80,000, wrote 30,000. It was like completely different. It was, so, it was just a completely different thing. How did thing. the story arc change? Originally, actually, I think the lead up to their wedding was like a year or something. It was like completely what, different. And your agent was like, you need to up the stakes. And My yeah. agent was, yeah, like just so much stuff. She was just like, it, I think I was very concerned, I think. That's the thing about being a female writer, isn't it? Like you're concerned that like, am I going to be taken seriously? And I'm someone who doesn't take themselves seriously at all. <laughs> so but why wouldn't you have been taken seriously? Because I think the original version the original iteration was very verbose and very like no humor and then i actually read a book called such a fun age by kylie reed and it was like irreverent and it was dealing with serious issues like racism and like class difference and but it was funny as hell and i remember interviewing her and saying like how did you do that because i want to do that and she kind of was just like respect to like literary fiction that's really like serious but her, i think her examples like not everyone can write about the old man journey to the top of the mountain with the like you know pocket watch like that's not everyone's journey and like for me i'm not she was like i don't write that way and i was like neither do i actually so i think the first version was really verbose and serious and i think my agent and as well the writing retreat just gave me permission to be a little bit more to not care so much if people said it was commercial, like- And inject a bit more who cares humor. Who commercial? And, yeah. yeah, exactly. And like commercial's good. I mean, commercial sells, so it's, it's been adapted. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know. Don't chunk commercial. Right, let's not chunk commercial. And also um, do you think sometimes with creativity, it's, it's sort of the commercial's like the sellout route, Oh you know? my God, yes, which is so annoying. It's been, I write about reality TV and I write about it in the most serious, like I honestly think it is like a microcosm of life. I think it is, it, most reality shows will be used as like evidence of like life in like a hundred years time. And we'll look back and be like, oh my God, we learned so much about misogyny and like race and all this stuff from reality TV. It's like why I'm obsessed with Love Island. I'm like constantly be like, oh my God, this is just a microcosm of like what happens in dating in real life. And I, I, I genuinely respect the form. And I think when I say to people, I write about reality TV, they think like, 
Oh, like gossip, kind gossip. Of, yeah. but I'm like, no, I literally write like an anthropological <laughs> <laughs> column about reality TV. They're like, oh, oh, what? And it's right? And I'm like, that's my approach to everything. Like, I really, that's why I don't know what caught in my head imposter syndrome, probably. That like, I felt I needed to write something that like mm. was like really serious and stern. And then like, as time went on, with the help of my like brilliant agent and the people at the um, writing retreat, it gave me permission to write what I wanted to write, which was dealing with very serious themes but like of course there are going to be jokes in it because there's life is dark and light and do you know what i mean and i felt confident to write something that ha was a mix of things serious but in parts not i was given permission to make something that people wanted it was propulsive and not apologize for it and also touching on a really serious subject you yes know, the kind of the wake of the me too movement right and when you were saying that all these lists were going right. around what is your sort of view on the consequence of of that? It's something that I really tried to touch on in the book, which is that the internet is incredibly powerful. And I don't think we have come to terms with how powerful it is yet. What I wanted to show was that the internet can, for lack of better phrase, night you and good night you. Like it is something that can make or break you quite literally. Ola and Michael are famous and successful because of the internet and they owe their livelihoods and their notoriety, everything, their jobs to the internet. If it wasn't for the internet, which I think I can relate to because I started out as a blogger yeah, um, and then ended up at like Channel 4 News. So like, yeah, like I thought it was really important to look at the fact that like, yes, it is powerful in the one way that it can also give a voice to the voiceless, which cannot be underestimated or understated like those lists what's controversial are not born out of boredom or malice it's born out of constant failings from systems that are supposed to protect women so people feeling like they have to take things into their own hands simultaneously the internet is not a safe place it's open to weaponization it's open to abuse it's led to like trolling and like malice like we've never seen historically and i wanted to kind of show that like the outcome of these things regardless of what the intentions are aren't necessarily things we can control and i think we are societally but even just in terms of law it's unregulated it's completely it's a wild west and we will look back and not i don't even think 20 years time 10 years time and be like what the hell was that like <laughs> Every, everything goes online. And I just think conversation around like cancel culture, which I'm really, I constantly try to steer clear of in terms of in relation to this book, but like cancel culture and like- But it must you know, be, you must be asked about that a course, lot. Absolutely. And I feel like the conversations around that kind of thing are really commandeered by people with often nefarious interests and people, bad faith actors who want to talk about cancel culture and want to talk about a stifling of free speech in order to kind of like stop people being able to use their voices and speak truth to power. That's why I think it's important for progressive people to wrestle back the conversations about cancel culture and free speech from people who would prefer people didn't speak at all, if that makes sense. I think it's important that if you are a feminist and if you are someone who like values giving minority people the ability to for movements online, it's important then to make sure we are having those critical conversations as well, even though they're not comfortable, even though they're not easy, because if not, then you leave it to people who kind of want to potentially undermine like movements and will say, well, hey, how about if you create a list like that, 
it can be used in this way, but that's why I feel like it should be a conversation that we are also having so that we don't leave it to just one side of the debate. I think we all, sometimes there's uncomfortable conversations. I think what worries me is that people, good faith actors and people who have everyone's best interests at heart shy away from these conversations because they're uncomfortable but then that means that because they're scared of getting it wrong exactly or... and also because they're like oh i don't want to feed into the narrative that like this is a bad thing but i'm like hey sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing but sometimes it's a flawed thing and if we don't talk about those flaws we're pretending that it's not flawed and then things slip through the cracks that like then become out of our control i'm a journalist so for me it's like one of my friends said that like journalism deals with facts but fiction often deals with truth and like it can be mm. easier to tell the truth in fiction and i feel like that is why i wanted to do this this way both sides of the debate both sides of the conversation have just been i felt like i was walking a tightrope whilst writing i was just constantly like my friend was like, oh my god it was such a road i felt queasy because like the minute i thought one thing you just like pull the rug and i was like because that's life which is i think why it's so powerful and it's Thank you. been picked up and everything because life is nuanced yeah. and there are you know two experiences of one situation yeah. and both valid and hold their own truth Absolutely. but because of the way the internet is that doesn't really it doesn't make space for that no. and so i think which people, is intentional which is intent what it, when you say intentional as in as in platform being weaponized yeah like i remember some sort of report i'm gonna get this totally wrong but i remember there was some sort of information that was suggesting that like platforms like facebook and twitter like literally thrive on like polarization so the more we stoke up these like fires and these debates in a particular way that's like you know really rigid and black and white it actually like it gets people riled up it 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 lends itself to clicks and virality and if everyone's having a nice conversation and you know it all like kind of in you know commune and it's not very volatile it's not really volatile and it, no one's gonna click on like no one it doesn't it's not clickbaity it's not clickbaity it literally they prioritize like but, but when you say the the sort of intention behind it is that just because as human beings we're more drawn to the volatility or because it's actually being actively weaponized to create polarization we all contain multitudes right so like everyone is like constantly in some way like being hypocritical or like undermining something they're supposed to believe and i think lots of things can be true at once and lots of people can hold multiple ideas in their heads at once and i think that we are you know you know when people talk about like if you, you don't pay for something you're the product so that's kind of changed with twitter now but like if you know i feel like we are often in many ways the product in terms of like social media and what we give is like attention so i think it's attention, stoked up yeah. i think it, i think it's very intentionally like ramped up because they know that in order to keep our attention especially with competing platforms is to take things to the extremes and it just completely kills nuanced debate and i think that feel it feels very intentional to me because i feel like i would feel like oh wow maybe human beings are just that way wired but then you come offline and you have a conversation with someone about the exact same thing the exact same person you're talking about online talking to online and it's completely different because everyone just takes it down a notch everyone takes it down a notch and it's it seems like people are less activated yes in a way that online people seem to be triggering the shit out of each other absolutely and sort of passing their trauma back and yeah. forth and it's just like oh my god i'm gonna get out of here what am i doing with this but on the other side i also feel that people now are having their 
public opinions that they're sharing online and digitally Mm. but then their private ones are very different it's actually very true yeah and i think that actually lends itself to that part of the conversation because i feel like if there was room for nuance then people would probably be slightly more authentic but i think again not to you know the fucking specter of cancel culture which i don't want to talk about too much but is the center of everything people do live in that fear of like backlash or i constantly live in fear of um misinterpretation so my thing isn't oh i have a completely different opinion offline it's more maybe i just won't even have an opinion online because i'm afraid it might be taken out of context or misconstrued. Yeah, and I, I guess that's cut probably why you don't want to talk about the cancel culture thing, right? And oh, also absolutely. in the way that you did the book with this very yeah. sort of tightrope balanced absolutely. view because you don't want to... Because I just know I could just... We could be sat here having this perfectly nuanced conversation and like, I don't know, the, like the end of a sentence could be chopped off where I'm saying, so cancel culture. I don't even know what, I, like even now I'm like trying to think like, what's the wrong one again? Like, I can't remember. Like, I feel like- It's a minefield. Like it's a minefield, <laughs> it is. And I just feel like, and also on the internet, there's no room for people to just say, I don't know. So for me, me and Elizabeth were like, oh my God, like people would ask us questions about like how to stop racism in the workplace. And we were like 25 and we're like, well, we don't know. <laughs> what like we have no idea but everyone's a journalist today and everyone has everyone's Everyone's a critic everyone's (laughs) a critic so like no one ever just says i actually don't know what i think about this thing it's like you need an immediate answer and you need to have it right now and it needs to be right so for me sometimes i'm just like i'm actually gonna sit this one out because i haven't decided what i think yet and that's also as valid as saying i have a really strong everyone has really strong opinions about everything online and i don't actually understand how it's possible because <laughs> i'm just like yeah there are loads of things to like without care really about. knowing what they're talking about if you have a strong opinion on like i don't know poverty oh my god hats off, that makes sense if you have a strong opinion on like smarties or something i don't know skittles like freaking rye bread why i'm just like these are things that like i don't know you people argue vehemently and angrily about things that i'm just like how do you how are you this upset about someone saying that like but it's like, a transference really is 100 percent. it's never about what smarties like, never <laughs> it's never about the smarties it's never about those skills or the m&ms or whatever other confectionery it's just about whatever else and i think again it's like a feeling of like superiority like that people oh my god the worst thing that people are able to kind of like i suppose attack people but also the internet allows you to do it under this guise of like righteousness mm. i think that's what really worries like me that, that virtue signaling kind of yeah because i feel like virtue signaling in and of itself so like you know is is not necessarily like a great thing but i think when it then is coupled with someone going i'm telling you that you are the scum of the earth and don't deserve to live and I'm doing that I'm because- guising it as it's- um, Now I'm able to say it, like, yeah, I'm couching it in this thing of like, but I'm righteous in saying this because you are an arsehole. And sometimes they are an arsehole. And other times like people make mistakes and either way, I don't know if the way to navigate, like holding people accountable is a level of vitriol. But this is why I bring up things like skills and stuff. So I'm like, I, honestly my sister always says to me like when people come out talking about like you know hate they've received online and they're like oh my god i got death threats my sister will like trace back what like happened and she's like how is this person receiving death threats when literally from what i can see the debate was that they said that 
Mean Girls was actually a shit film. It's certainly been normalized, certainly for worse, where it's like, oh, with a certain level of visibility comes a level of unfair and disproportionate criticism. But I think why now it feels crazier is because it's like, you can literally just be someone who fires off a random tweet one day and then the turns off day. their phone and goes comes makes back. a cup of tea and comes back and and it's like it was yeah. 15 minutes of fame before it's like 15 seconds now where it's like you can literally just be this teenage tiktoker that like says something stupid and suddenly you are the most famous person in the world for 15 seconds and but those are 15 really intense seconds and that can be damaging for the rest of your life absolutely yeah which I does make so. people i think live in quite this fear-based way of 100%. monitoring everything everyone's living in it yeah it's crazy and in terms of with the book then kind of getting the story to a point where you felt happy with it what has been the craziness experience of then it being picked up to be taken to tv because that's just the whole and it's not even out it will be out hopefully when this it will be out i believe hopefully it comes out july 20th it's been amazing but without sounding like the world's like least grateful person i'm like oh my god selling your book before it comes out everyone's like this has got to be fucking amazing (laughs) and i'm reading it back like (laughs) i'm like i i like it like i'm like shit because like you've got quite a big time in between i have i'm like god i've got to sell this thing i've got to really like but then also simultaneously like manage expectations i think people literally think i've like written like the bible i'm like i don't know how like this is like it's it's extreme because even when it went out to auction. I had zero expectations. It was a lockdown, but I, I sold it on a partial. So I'd written 30,000 words. Mean? When you're doing um, non-fiction, as you'll know, you don't have to complete the whole book, but when you're writing fiction, you have to write the whole thing. So I, thanks to my, my agent was just like, we're gonna take this out on submission. I was like, but it's not finished. And also it's like, like given the themes and stuff, like people probably gonna wanna know how this ends before buying yeah. it. And she was like, no, no, trust me. We had a nine way auction for Slaying Your Lane. And I was like, there's no way this is gonna like beat that. But it was an 11 way auction. And then we took it out to um, TV. And then there was like 17 different production companies bidding. And I was just like losing my mind. I was like, I can't, I can't believe this is happening. The time difference means I was like literally in pajama bottoms, but like we put on like a smart shirt. <laughs> but like I had my pajamas on. Cause it was like 10 o'clock at night, but cause of the time difference. So you're actually there. So they, they kind of like, oh God, it's crazy. Like you get your agents just calling you like this person's offered this and this person's offered that. And then they're just kind of going back and forth. That's That was the book auction. But the TV one was like slightly different. Like, you know, we were on Zoom and they'd all kind of like, pitched at the same time so it was like less of an auction with the tv it was more like here are 17 people you, do you want to meet them and see what their what their interpretation of your book would be for screen me being the chakra i am i like got my notes because i was like i can't pick between those three i remember getting my notes app and putting a24 hbo max and bbc and just being like it's above me now i leave it to the universe kind of thing and then however many days later my agent us agent was like guess what? They've all agreed to work together. And I was like, this cannot be <laughs> happening. Like, I don't even, I almost don't like talking about it because it sounds, I'm always saying it sounds made up. It sounds like I'm just <laughs> chatting shit. So when I couldn't talk about it for like a year, cause this happened all like last February. So I was just like, people can't possibly think I'm telling the truth. Cause they'd be like, oh, what are you doing? Oh yeah. Well, actually they've all bid on my book and yeah, I'm working with 824. And I was like, I need this to be announced. Cause it, 
for me yeah. to know this is happening. So, so it's real. Yeah. And then it's been an absolute whirlwind because I've been, I hadn't finished the book. I still was on 30,000 words when That's all this crazy. happened. So then I was like, oh my God, I spent the year writing it being like to my agent, are you sure this isn't shit? Are you sure? Like my editor, like, what if I wrote the first nine chapters and they were really good and the rest is just yeah, really rubbish? That wasn't going to happen. I just feel really grateful without sounding like, you know, too, too sashman, but like, I actually am just like, a normal person. I can't believe this happened. So I think it's amazing and it's so inspiring Thank because, you. and also just hearing the whole journey for anyone listening that is thinking of starting a creative oh, project or, or having that imposter syndrome or got an idea that they're sort of scared to start. Yeah. Just that, you know, your evidence of making it happen. Thank and you. I think it's really amazing. Oh, and I cannot kind. wait to see the actual TV show. Oh. Um, oh, that's gonna be some time. I think that won't be like till twenty twenty five, six, but it will it will come. It's gonna happen. It will happen. Oh, thank you. Yumi, thank you so much for joining for me. me. And congratulations on everything you've oh, achieved. Thank you so much, Kagi. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with me and the wonderful Yomi. And I hope you enjoyed it and it inspired you if you are on that creative writing journey I know it can be a challenging one but from hearing her story I definitely feel inspired that the most beautiful things can come from these creations and I cannot wait to see what the future holds for her so yeah very very exciting and just a reminder to pick up a copy of the list it is available from any good retailer you can order it on amazon i highly suggest reading it so thank you very much yomi and for all of you who listened and as always remember you are not alone goodbye <laughs>